Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 177, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. A silver lining. What were the best things that happened in education during 2020? And which Class Dismissed interviews top our 2020 best of list? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a year-end review. We're taking a look back at our favorite podcast and guest of 2020. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, your school is now back 100% virtual for the past week. How have things been going? Things have been going well. I, I, I'm so proud of the students. Um, we actually, it was time for us to do our mid-year assessments. And after um, four or five days of, of, of virtual learning, we have about 80% complete. And um, that might not sound like normal, like you should get 80% complete the first day. But based on circumstances, internet connectivity, you have it. I'm extremely proud to have that many students have completed both their reading and their math assessments, um, giving us an opportunity to, again, look at what we need to do and shift in our instruction um, for their growth. And so it's it's been a good week. Teachers have been as positive as they can, and I've had to go overload on, you know, supporting them even more so than supporting the students. Yeah, it's been um, an interesting past few weeks. I think, you know, the entire country almost feels like a hot spot. Um, locally for us in the South here, uh, I'm watching more and more schools, you know, first either go to hybrid and then go virtual after being traditional for mm-hmm. a little while. Uh, I, I know that uh, the rumors are in the district that our kids go to that things are getting ready to shut down. I'll be impressed if they even make it through the next week before Christmas Christmas break. Um, they might even call yeah, it Christmas before. It'll then. be interesting to see. I will tell you that we have announced um, as of Friday that our district is planning to return back to the hybrid model uh, when we return after the holiday break. Mm -hmm. Originally, we were supposed to go back traditional, and um, they understand with the numbers and the and the spike in cases that that's not going to be what's best for students and teachers. Yeah, that's probably a good move. And I mean, who's to say, you know, you can move back traditional ASAP, but let's see how things let's let things cool down after those Christmas family meetings and gatherings and stuff. So yeah, I doubt that happens. I think that we're going to go hybrid for at least the entire month of January, Mm -hmm. let a few weeks go by after holiday gatherings and family time, and see, um, you know, what that looks like. Of course, we're all waiting in anticipation to see when the vaccine will be available um, for us regular folks. And so I do think the entire month of January is going to be hybrid. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if we remained that way until spring break just to keep things clear, seeing as how we, you know, will be coming off of a school 
uh, shutdown. <laughs> 2020 has been quite a year. I mean, it's it's weird to even think that, you know, my grandkids will probably ask me about 2020 one day, you know, what was that like when, when y'all had this major pandemic? But um, there have been some positive things that have come out of the year. And I wanted us today, um, this episode's all about kind of the best things that have happened in 2020 and finding that silver lining. Um, I wanted your thoughts. It's funny that you bring that up. Um, I literally was encouraging a teacher yesterday. Um, She lives here and she lives alone. Her family's, you know, not in town. And so quarantining has been hard for her. And I remember yesterday that I kind of cracked a joke and it was hard for her to realize it because she's in her late 20s um, and I'm in my 40s. And I told her that it will be a funny story that we'll be able to share with our grandchildren. And they'll call it the olden days and old times, you right. know, just like um, we've done with our parents. And so, and it's just unfathomable to be honest. And you just can't believe it, but it is real and it is here. And the big thing about my communication with her yesterday was just trying to find, you know, the positive and and, and be optimistic about it. Right. And I was thinking like, you know, what what in my world has improved because of 2020? Yeah. And, and one thing that jumped out to me was the the whole idea of communicating online is that much easier and and mm-hmm. for somebody who does a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews with people that's actually been a positive for me and, and you know you and I yes. we, we used to always meet in person we haven't met in person since March or February somewhere around there i guess early March and and here we are and it's so easy for us to connect but it's also so easy for me to connect with these people that I, i'm constantly seeking out and looking for interviews yes. for this show it used to be sometimes like some of the best people uh, the best interviews sometimes they may be not as computer savvy and that mm-hmm. connecting through zoom or whatever service zencast or whatever we difficult. use made it difficult well now it's kind of the norm and I think that improves the audio quality of the show and uh you know and just it's kind of neat to watch everybody kind of step up their game in that department you definitely upped my game. Um, early on, you dropped off this really cool <laughs> mic and uh, connectivity ch- changed for me. And I just like that. Some things we talked about in an earlier episode a few months ago, um, after going through the summer and vacations being uh, canceled, you and I talked about some positives in regard to home life, mm-hmm. how we were able to spend more time with our family and if nothing else, get to know each other all over again. And for some people to actually fall in love again, um, being forced to you know, spend that quality time and getting back to the time where families have meals together and not just for the big holidays, which is why they're such a big deal. Right. Um, but the regular weeknight meals, I think um, on a personal perspective, I think that has been huge for a lot of families and a lot of children. Yeah, I've also liked how it's been neat to see how schools have kind of all learned how to go virtually. So I I do envision these opportunities to go virtual and just say like a a natural disaster scenario um, or something like that. It's going to be that much easier. So I think that is probably a a good thing. I mean, do do you imagine, you know, if we have a a hurricane push through that maybe won't miss as much school? Listen, it's rebranded snow days. Now we live in the South, but... um, in the middle of my career, I used to work uh, in North Mississippi, and there was a time where we had four or five snow days. I mean, like literally in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of didn't take much, just a forecast, right? Well, you know, a lot of ice in a county where the buses have to go on those, you know, very country roads. You just you, we could not have school, and I just have been thinking about 
that those days of lost instruction, hoping and wishing that the State Department would grant us, you know, waivers where we didn't have to make all of those days up. Whereas now, if in the future, if we happen to have snow day, if we have a hurricane where we need to close school just to be safe and keep everybody home in anticipation for it, we can still have instruction. And even in this instance, when schools are seeing, you know, an outbreak and having too many uh quarantine students and or teachers causing an issue to provide instruction, um, being able to just shut your school down, you go into virtual mode and children don't skip a beat. What they do skip perhaps is the social interaction and for a lot of them, um, those hot meals, but quality instruction can still occur and teachers can still perform um, their very skilled jobs. Am I wrong to think another positive may be I don't think it's happened yet, but I think you, you're starting to hear rumbles of it, a, a reevaluation of how we grade and how the grading scale works. Do you, do you hear anything like that? I think that we hear about it because we are researchers and we read and we want to know what's what's new, what's fresh, what's on the horizon. But right where I'm serving, that conversation is not happening. Okay. Um, I think that it'll take a little bit more time as there are a lot of other kinks um, being worked out by school superintendents. However, as we go into the future, one thing that we all have heard is that we know virtual learning won't go away. I mean, it's been around in the post-secondary um, realm for for years. I mean, when I earned my master's degree, I took a couple of um, online classes and now you can get, you know, entire degrees um, virtually, you know, and online. And so we'll, we'll see how that plays out first, what opportunities and what changes will be made for the next school year. We are all anticipating being able to have a normal school year next year with the vaccinations being out, but we will see what type of opportunities um, arise. And if it makes us change the way we look at grading and even a bigger deal that's tied to grading is the way we look at attendance, because that's a big issue right now. Um, Students are being held accountable for um, attendance, whether they log in or not. And then if they don't complete things that are loaded in a learning management system by a particular uh, cutoff time, then they're getting zeros or low grades for their assignments. And I do think that it's a discussion that's going to have to um, come, but it will all depend on how great we truly embed virtual learning in the K-12 sector. What about, and you mentioned this in a previous show, a, a revolution into the idea of year-round school? Do you think that's coming? I do. I really do. I mean, can we can um, we say the pandemic is the the cause of these discussions, or was that just natural? I would say in? yes, the pandemic. Well, you have schools like such, you know, in California who have had the year round model for quite some time now, and it's been successful and it works for them. But uh, a lot of other states, I have to just say, is they're just so comfortable doing what they've always done. It keeps, you know, the feathers from being ruffled. But now the pandemic has actually given educational leaders an opportunity to, you know, dig into topics and ideas that they've always been interested in, but they didn't or would not receive any support. And so now you have the eyes of the state superintendent and those from around the country who are involved in these discussions. And I'm really looking forward to see what comes out this spring. As I shared with you before, we took a survey, um, I want to say last month, for our superintendent, and it was given out to all of the teachers on to get garner their opinion on whether they think a year-round model would work in our area, why or why not. But at the end of the day, 
um, we're going to do what's best for students and families because, you know, you, you've got to be able to accommodate that a, a great shift also has to take place in your community and in the mindset of how we serve kids outside of school. So it's going to pull in some community programs, churches, um, aftercare programs, and even um, daycare centers on their hours and, and how they can help support uh, such a model. Right. I mean, I'm all for it for a parent. I, I believe you mm-hmm. can learn a lot by traveling. I like the idea of moving those vacation opportunities around in the year I, I, and not just being pinned down to the summer and, you know, around Christmas and maybe a, a, a spring little window there. Um, I like it kind of being scattered, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that's I'm all for it. But I'm curious to see how that plays out. The um, the last thing that I wanted to bring up that I really, you know, feel like will will pay dividends from the year 2020 is just the importance of the role that educators play. And we really felt this, I think, in March and April and May. I, I hope that sentiment doesn't go away nationwide. But, you know, as these state legislators start coming back up for raises and, you know, kind of, you know, yeah. talking about sinking money into education. I mean, can we not all agree how important of a role education has played over the past nine months? I think we all agree, and I think we've all agreed before then, but as an educator, I still think that we're not as valued as we need to be, and even with future discussions coming, and I don't want to be negative, but I, I believe in being a realist, I still don't think they truly understand what it took to pull off um, providing instruction for children this fall and the value that ed- educators play in the entire process of living through a pandemic. I mean, I think most educators would agree, and you push back here if I'm wrong, but the the part of the year, I guess you would call it the 2020-2021 year, so let's not talk about the mm-hmm. spring, was actually more difficult than just going virtual in the spring because I it think was. a lot of educators were doing both. They were teaching in person and they were teaching online. I mean, it's double the work. That's correct. It is double work. They, it was a learning curve. There were a lot of things to figure out. There were a lot of things to purchase before you could even get it figured out. I mean, it was it was massive. And in the spring, while we say they were they were only teaching virtually, there were a lot of teachers who weren't actually teaching virtually because they didn't have the means to do so. Their children didn't have the means to connect with them, even if they had personal devices and internet at home to teach with, their their students weren't able to. And just access to so many resources we needed to truly set it up. I think that even um, if we, when we move into the future and only a handful of students um, consume their instruction virtually, I think that we will continue to use the resources and tools that we gained this fall. Um, I think that there will be some new toys because it's always fun for us to learn new things to come out. But I think it's time for us to stop doing the gimmicks and all of the new tricks um, in education and get something solid that is going to be sustainable to make sure that, you know, we're, we're providing that high quality instruction in the future. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, for this episode, I asked you to kind of like reflect on some of the episodes we had, some of the interviews that we've had over the year. And I guess we'll call this kind of like editor's choice between you and I. And, and what stood out um, for you in terms of our shows? I think that really the one that stood out for me the most, and, and I'm a little <laughs> I'm a little biased because he's my former superintendent. Um, but Dr. Ben Burnett, who was the superintendent of Lamar County School District, he actually um, visited with us on a, on a couple of different episodes. But particularly um, earlier this year, he gave us some insight on some things he's experienced. And I actually I think he might be one of few superintendents who have had to lead during multiple, um, you know, weather related 
crises. Uh, but in Katrina, it was district wide, everybody, and especially down in Purvis, the the damage was worse because it's further su- south. It's further yeah. south. Uh, but we had a tornado. We suspect that had gone down the main building at Oak Grove Middle School and basically just peeled the roof back. And it was the building where my office was. So I walked into my office, and all the drop ceiling tile was, you know, wet and uh, on the floor. It looked like mashed potatoes were all <laughs> right. And, and so anyone listening who's not familiar with this type of weather, you have the hurricane, but then you have these small tornadoes oh, yeah. embedded yeah. within the hurricane. It sounds that's like right. that's what caught your office. You yeah, think? and we had plenty yeah. of wind damage, trees down, uh, uh, glass everywhere. Just his whole thought process, and and he's so cool, so reflective. And you would never think that his brow ever sweats. Right. Just you, the way he handles himself. He was talking, you're talking about um, episode 138, which um, we titled How One Educator Tackled Three Natural Disasters. And in it, um, we highlighted how he was a principal at a, a middle school during Hurricane Katrina 2005. And mm-hmm. then in 2013, eight years later, he was the superintendent where they were hit by an EF4 tornado. Um, mm-hmm. fortunately no one was injured at the school. It was actually on the, uh, a weekend. And then in 2017, he was the Dean at a local private university where they were hit by an EF3 tornado. So he had mm-hmm. this unique experience of leading through these natural disasters. And the, the, the crazy thing was when I did that interview with him, it was February of this year. And just before news of actually going and living in a pandemic. Right. We knew that I think things were starting to bubble, you know, but I don't think we actually anticipated that school would have been shut down as long as it was. And what's so cool is if you go back and listen to this interview, we talk about, especially with Katrina, I think he was closed for a month. And and we had this conversation of, you know, like, how do you get through being closed for a month? And hearing his perspective on that, and then not knowing that in a month, we were about to go through something even greater in terms of length of time. You don't waste time during the day. And I've seen a lot of uh, charts and uh, calculations of how much time during the 180 days of school that we probably waste, you know, say, five minutes a period per day. You know, if if a teacher just shuts down five minutes before the end of class and they do that every day for 180 days, that's way more than three weeks. So, I mean, you just grab time everywhere you could. We, we devised a new bell schedule because I think we added about an hour onto the day okay, or maybe 30 minutes. And um, so we, we made those things longer. Uh, we did not you know, the the old getting out for pep rallies or assemblies or fundraising things. We just didn't do stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, instructional time was much more protected. And that's really what we ought to do during the school year. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a culture of having anything fun for the students and anything outside of the classroom. But we just did all we could to protect the instructional time. It was very touching because even I can remember at that time I was still a classroom teacher and um, it was just amazing being out for four weeks and knowing that we were all going through the same struggle and the just just the whole you know process of trying to recover from Hurricane Katrina. But as a principal, 
I mean, he led his team and he did a wonderful job. And you could never, ever say anything negative about a school administrator during a tough time because it might be their very first experience. And the most important thing is just, you know, those relationships, caring for your people and your community. Yeah. Dr. Burnett um, also talked, it was a different time. It was 2005 with Katrina, but they actually had to hook up, I think, like a generator to a computer and a printer to print paychecks at that time. You understand there at that time, now they're probably 13 or 14 employees, but at that time, at least a thousand employees who are depending on those checks. Yeah. One um, episode that stood out for me um, was my interview. It wasn't too long ago. It was with Harvard Harvard, uh, professor, Dr. Um, Helen Reese, who wrote the book, The Empathy Effect. And Hmm. I mean, whether you're an educator or just any person, like this is a phenomenal book on how to learn to be more empathetic. Is, Is empathy an innate quality or is this something we can teach and learn? Well, the answer to that is it's both. Um, For many, many years, people thought empathy was something you were either born with or or not, and that there wasn't too much you could do about your empathy quotient. But, um, you know, many research studies have kind of uh, put that notion um, on its head because we now, um, including my research team at Mass General Hospital, have shown that we definitely can teach empathy skills. She actually dedicates an entire chapter to educators. We get so many calls from other industries and education is, you know, one of the top um, industries that's interested in expanding empathy because I think as all good educators realize most learning is emotional. I don't think that for whatever reason, this episode really spiked with listens, but it's worthy of it. Like if you want to go and and really kind of just learn something quickly, this interview with Dr. Helen Reese for me really stood out. Did you catch that one? Yeah. Did you actually share the episode number for our listeners? That's one they're not going to want to miss. Right, right. right. No, I didn't. It's actually um, episode 170. Um, And again, it's titled, uh, Here's How to Bring Empathy and SEL into Your Classroom. Um, And so she offers these, you know, great tips. Um, And for example, like she has the ABCs of empathy. acknowledge. Acknowledge when you're in a difficult conversation. B is take a deep breath because that gives a little pause from the trigger to our response. And C is show curiosity. Because as soon as we move to judgment, there's really no open door left to show empathy. But if we say, gee, I'd like to understand why you did that, you might get a, you know, an angry response. But once the person's listened to and heard, you usually can get to a deeper level. You know, maybe they're upset because it reminds them of something that happened in the past or it's, you know, the third time somebody's been, you know, mean to them. But before we start scolding, I really think we need to acknowledge, that's the A, B, take a deep breath and show curiosity. Like, tell me what just happened here. Help me understand what just took place. But then mm-hmm. the the one thing that like kind of stuck with me, and and I still need to practice it better, but it's so simple, is when you meet somebody, she recommends, in your mind, not verbally, not aloud, recognizing and registering in your mind their eye color. And what ends up happening is you're going to make extended eye contact with that person. 
And I mean, and again, don't be creepy and be like, oh, beautiful blue eyes. But, you know, just kind of register it in your mind. And, and that actually will go a long way to connect with that individual. I, I, I absolutely believe that. But I also think it's OK to say, wow, cool blue eyes. <laughs> it, you know, sometimes compliments will just crack the ice and, and open things up. But eye contact just shows how sincere you are and how what the other person is, is saying um, is important to you. What else stood out for you this year? Well, talking about making, you know, connections and, and building relationships, there's this really cool teacher out there um, that we interviewed in episode 154. And he talks about making emotional deposits um, with your students. And that to me stood out probably more than anything, because one thing we teach our new teachers, and it's, and it's in a popular book that we share with new teachers is relationships, relationships, relationships. Mm-hmm. That's the three keys yes. um, to teaching. You're, you're talking about... Um... CJ Reynolds, and he actually has a massive following online and on Instagram. Um, This is, uh, I'll be frank, he he is a white male teaching, I believe, in inner city Philadelphia. Yes. One, I just think they're they're teenagers, right? Like, I teach teenagers, which is a time in your life that, you know, there's a reason that when you are 14, 15 years old, you start listening to music that your parents hated uh, or they hate. You start dyeing your hair purple. Um, you know, for my guys, they'll grow like they'll grow their hair out longer or they'll get dreads or braids and their parents do not like this, uh, many of them. And so there's a reason we do that because we don't know how else to sort of stand out. So we do it in any way that we can. And so kids just think that like you're supposed to hate school and I'm going to hate school. And so it it becomes this thing between the teacher and and the student. But I just think that there's ways to kind of mitigate that and, and get around it very quickly. He has managed to build these very strong relationships with all of his students, but he's done it in an authentic way. And I think that's intimidating for a lot of people on like how to build those authentic relationships. And that's well, kind of what it, he teaches It has us. to come naturally. Listen, they love him. Like, he is super cool to them. He gets them. They want to be around him. And, it, and it's not an act. It's not something that he, you know, forces. It's natural because he really has heart for kids. And there are a lot of teachers who, you know, they have heart for teaching and they are super skilled with their content area, but they do struggle in the relationship building. And I'm just going to tell you, and he shares that it doesn't matter, you know, how intelligent you are, how fabulous you can teach algebra, but if you can't make the connections with the students, they're not going to open up to learn, to think deeply and to be challenged in your classroom. And so I want kids to know that, no, I want to be here. I could be anywhere, but I want to teach here and I want to teach you and I want to have the greatest year ever. So on that first day, there's no talk of rules or policies or procedures. All that stuff comes later. There's no syllabus until at least day three or four. It is me trying to connect with students and get them excited about the year. And I know that that you know that we only have limited days and, and that we need to get through the stuff that we need to get through in school. And there's, you know, but I think there's still time to, uh, to, to build it up, to get people excited about what's going on. And then from the jump, I get to know my students. I want to know everything about them. Where do you come from? What are you interested in? What kind of music do you like? What kind of movies do you like? You know, and when we learn who we are teaching this year, then that changes everything. Yeah. And and what I liked about what he said was he talked about how it was so important to make those deposits on the front end. So when Mm -hmm. then something kind of 
you know, maybe more difficult conversations come up, you've already made those deposits. You've already built trust with those people. And for example, we were yeah. we were interviewing in episode 154 around the time of the protest following um, George Floyd's homicide. Yes. And and I was like, you know, how do you how do you actually talk to these students and and why would they even want to listen to you? So to to be fair, um these are never hard conversations to have with students, right? And I want, I want, I really think educators need to hear that because wait, so, so they're and, not hard. You said no, 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 not at all. Okay. But, and and here's why: because because when you create a community within your classroom or within your school or amongst your faculty of having honest conversations, no matter what, then when things come up, you are you've already made. The de- you've already made the deposit into those students. They already know that you care. They already know that you're real. They already know that you're willing to have a conversation about anything and that you're willing to be vulnerable, that you're willing to not know everything, that you're willing to be sad in front of them, that you're willing to show your heartbreak. Already built it in because there's no way you can go in and talk about racism and racial biases or any of those things if you don't have an established and strong relationship with your students where they they see you, they know, they know your heart. Heart. They actually understand your intent. But not only that, gives them the platform to be brutally honest with their feelings and their emotions and not feel that they'll be judged or look at, looked at differently later. Um, and I'm just so proud of the fact that he felt comfortable, you know, hey, let's circle up. We, we've got something going on in our world right now. It's impacting you and, the, and this community greatly. And let's get it off our chest. Let's see what we can unpeel. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to keep it uh, over in Harvard for my other pick. Uh this week and or for the year rather oh, okay um, and it's uh, another it's a Harvard graduate school education professor um, named Paul Revel and um, he wrote the book titled broader bolder better how schools and communities help students overcome the disadvantages of poverty and what I really liked about his story was he approached it from a personal level like so he comes out and he starts talking about how he had a daughter who showed up for her first day of school um, in kindergarten at an urban public school. I'd like to think that um, her ultimate success uh, in school will be determined, you know, by her genetics and superior parenting. But let's take a look at some of the advantages that she's had growing up. So he began to make a whole list of of factors. It started with a stable two-parent family, uh, with adequate income, with prenatal care, with health care, with uh, stable housing, with full nutrition, um, with um, being read to every night, travel. By the time she entered kindergarten, I think she'd been to, to um, you know, maybe three or four continents and 10 or 12 foreign countries. Um, you know, a very rich, full experience. She was going into an urban public school system. She was sitting side by side with children who'd had none of the above, all the things that I just mentioned, and uh, various traumatic incidents, um, adverse childhood experiences on top of it. So you could make a comparable list for the child she was sitting next to, uh, a low-income youngster, more, more likely than not a student of color, uh, and uh, huge disadvantages. And when they come to school, it's as though, you know, uh, my daughter's coming to school, uh, and if you think of it as a 100-yard dash, she's already on the 50-yard line, whereas the kid she's sitting next to who's had all the disadvantage uh, is uh, 100, 100 yards behind the starting line. 
and we fire the starting gun. And when they don't finish at the same time, 13 years later at graduation, we act surprised. I like that. I like that a lot. And actually, I need to think about that. I need to go back and get that book. That'll be something great to share with my teacher leaders. Yes, I have that one. So uh, you've got a free copy coming your way. It's actually been riding around in my car with me. So I need to... Oh, you are awesome. I I need to make sure I drop it off for you. Um, So I guess the the thing is the undertaking that... I'm, I need to wrap my mind around is, you know, how do you make these changes outside of a school? How does a, a community, you know, do what's almost out, what could feel like it's outside of its reach? And it kind of goes back to, I know what LeBron James is trying to do with the, mm-hmm. the school initiatives that he's been having, where you offer, yeah. you know, opportunities for parents to come in and, and have mm-hmm. sorts of interviews and different things like that. I mean, are you familiar with that? I am. You know what? And it, it requires a, a shift in thinking. We're just going to call it what it is. Mm-hmm. You really have to have a pool of people who are all interested in getting to the same um, change or to the same goal in your community in order for that to happen. And I think the people in Ohio, which is where um, LeBron James has his school, I think they, they were just so excited and so ready to have something better for those children. One of the things we've been talking about in a couple of our ep- episodes is about equity. Mm-hmm. OK, and being able to provide students of poverty, students of color with the exact same opportunities and the exact same materials and resources and whatnot. That's the common denominator. And then understanding the work around it that it's going to take to to shift and move everybody to think and act in the same way um, to get them what they need. And I think that was something that he was able to bring to the table to build out his school. And I just you know, would love to see if we could replicate it all over the country. And I actually know of some education educators right now who have been talking about when the pandemic is over, they are looking forward to going and visiting some other successful schools and communities that have been able to make it happen. And again, if anybody wants to catch this episode that we're referring to, this was episode 156. So um, all in all... Hey, yeah, you got to bring that book by. I'm, I've got to read yeah, that. Absolutely. All in all, it, it was a... I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's been a bumpy year, but there are bright spots throughout this year. Am I wrong? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and we just need to remember that in, in everything, um, change happens. And listen, this is something that I wanted to I wanted to share with you the other day, and I failed to do so. I'm one of those educators that I come up with a big idea, I get my, you know, my strategy together, I develop the action plan, and I'm ready to implement it. But you know what? It doesn't Life doesn't always go the way we plan it out. And so for those of us who struggle with change, for those of us who struggle with being flexible um, and trying new things and being even even more innovative than we are already required to be in education, I'm just going to be that optimistic person and say, hey, the pandemic caused um, a lot of us to be much more flexible and to look at things through a different lens and to provide instruction and support and even love differently um, so that we could all get by this year. And you know, so, you know who's been strangely just, been a role model for me this year is are are the students. Like yeah. we we didn't go through anything that they have, and I I look at my kids and I think, man, I feel bad for them. Like we didn't have this this right. this year, but they they seem fine. They're going to be all right. And, yeah. and, and I, we always talk about them being resilient, though, and we need to be careful with that. Um, they are you know tough. They are resilient, but I think at the end of the day, they're just more positive than we are. Yeah, no, and I think that sometimes that they remind me of that. I always go think back to that first day of school that my son had, where I wanted to talk about like what was it like wearing a mask all day for school, and he's like, I just want to talk, about, <laughs> I just want to talk about class and my teachers. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm cool. Like, it's fine. I just, I just put it on. It's no big deal. And and I was like, all right, 
you know, yeah, you're right. Maybe that's how we should all look at things, you know? So. Yeah, that's because we were hyper analyzing everything as parents. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it goes without saying that this year has been a challenge for everyone around the globe. But without a doubt, educators this year have been one of the shining lights in a dark tunnel. In the spring, educators reinvented how we teach practically overnight. And in the fall, when teachers and administrators were called back into the classroom, they did so with the same bravery as a firefighter running into a burning house. It's been an honor for Christina and I to cover and highlight this year's biggest education stories, and we're also forever grateful to all of our class-dismissed guests. Thanks to them, we were able to share ideas that could be used around the country and the world at a time when conferences are, for the most part, dormant. Thank you for trusting and listening to Class Dismissed. We'll see you next year. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>